This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, Cultivating Place's Women's History Month interviews move to one of the more colorful and visible of the areas of horticulture, floristry and floral design, with a past guest, Kristen Heal, of Cultivated, based in British Columbia, Canada. In 1981, the writer Eleanor Perini wrote Green Thoughts, a writer in the garden. A collection of essays, it culminated with a provocative essay entitled Woman's Place. In it, Eleanor posits a theory for the centuries-long association between women and flower gardening, suggesting that it was a male-engineered incarceration of sorts, based on the, quote, superstitious fear that women were in league with nature in some ways that men were not, end quote. This male-dominated societal gifting of the contained flower garden to the realm of women thus simultaneously catered to and kept women and their power in check. Perini's historical line of inquiry opens wide sexism in horticulture, including floriculture, refreshingly. Rereading the piece got me thinking about the self-actualized, successful women reclaiming and operating from positions of power and intellect and care with their use of flowers and floral design in this first part of the 21st century. Kristen Giel demonstrates vividly that women are no longer incarcerated in the flower garden. Flowers are their horticultural medium for leading and educating others, acting not as pretty cages, but as colorful, vibrant, Socratic forums for critical thinking and action. Kristen's photographs of her carefully executed floral designs, often using organically homegrown blooms, greens, branches, and fruits, are paired with prose that reflects on issues of time and place as much as on environmental and cultural literacy. Her prose ranges from changing tastes in and views on color theory, plant selection, ecology, and literary criticism to personal and socio-political commentary. To my mind, Kristen is to flowers, what MFK Fisher was to food writing in the second half of the 20th century. Kristen's new book, Cultivated, The Elements of Floral Style, is out this month from Princeton Architectural Press. It is available everywhere books are sold. Kristen and I recorded this conversation remotely just one month ago in late February right before the two of us were headed to Seattle for the Northwest Flower and Garden Show. Our entire world has changed dramatically since then, and yet, perhaps now more than ever, the creativity and the thinking and hands-on activities and skills that is a life with plants remains more essential than ever. Welcome to this conversation, and welcome, Kristen. Hello, Jennifer. Lovely to speak with you again. So tell us, I think it's been two years, Kristen, um, since we last spoke, maybe even a little bit longer, but I am very pleased to be holding your book in my hand and to have your photography and your just inimitable writing and thinking all together in one beautiful little package. Tell us and tell listeners, what is your current, what do you do right now? Like, what are your jobs and how do you describe your current plant-based practice, Kristen? Oh, it's diverse. I'm having a hard time keeping track of it all lately. I think it's going to be a slow (laughs) year in the garden. Uh, With the book coming out, everything has changed and I will be uh, doing a number of speaking events Uh, around the country and in England and also in Canada 
and trying to get the book out into the world. I'm a team of one here. So I am also still trying to take photographs when I can, but we are speaking in February for people who are listening at another time of year. So it's just coming into seeding season for me. And I do have a small urban flower farm here and produce cut flowers that I will either sell wholesale or direct to consumer um, and to private clients. So that's predominantly what I'm doing. I'd like to be working on another book, but I just haven't had the bandwidth for it just yet. Yeah, because the diversity of all those things is really, um, it's demanding and it's it's important, and we're going to get more into that when we when we talk about the book and why it was important for you to put your flower practice into this new form. Um, but first, let's refresh listeners' memories with your own background and a little bit about sort of where you grew up and the people and places and plants that, that grew you into a person for whom this would be a calling. Well, I'm not one of those who can conjure the memory of a grandmother or anything so romantic. I grew up in downtown Toronto in Canada, and my experience of nature at that time was predominantly um, that of wilderness, and I mean that in a very Canadian sense of the word. So while I had a healthy respect for nature and knew how to navigate my way, chop wood, carry water, paddle a canoe, swim a lake, sail, ski, a a number of those things, they weren't um, related to horticulture in any way. And um, in my early 20s, I, or actually when I was still a teenager, I did go off and and, uh, work with an herbalist and I, in Martha's, on Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts for the summers. And that really, domesticated me and my understanding of nature and I have not swayed from that position since I live in British Columbia now on Vancouver Island which is largely wilderness and I don't spend much time out with the big trees or the big waves Um, truth be told I'm now focused on gardening and that world Um, a few other things happened in between those years I went on back to the land in my early 20s and homesteaded and lasted about five years carving a garden out of the bush on an island in British Columbia. It was off-grid. And then I went to Kew Gardens in England in the midst of that while I still owned that property to intern and knew that through doing that that I didn't really want to be a full-time horticulturalist but I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to be I thought I wanted to be a landscape architect uh, because I felt that it was interpretive in some way and about people in place in some way and I did complete a, a degree in environmental studies and anthropology and was exposed to a lot of ethnobotany in my 20s and then I had a baby and <laughs> decided Writing it always carried me through all of these endeavors. And so I did a graduate degree in writing. And so having this book now where I get to marry environmental thinking and um, horticulture with creative writing was a joy, actually. And that is a beautiful distillation of some of the bigger threads in your life and, and some of what comes up so beautifully in the book this idea of the the land and the environmentalism and the formal design sense and literary sense and context are all really rich threads in the book in a way that is that there is something really meaningful to someone like me who is a verbal person (laughs) (laughs) obviously and obviously and that context in the bigger scheme of things where flowers and design and thinking about them and artistry sit in our longest, deepest cultures, I found just powerful and beautiful. So so let's move to the book. There are so many books in, in um, florists and flowers and why this book? Why now? What was What was your personal purpose with this book? I 
being a student of writing and also a past student of horticulture, I felt that there was a, a place for a more literary book about flowers. I think in a way, when I first began the project, I would have been happy to have no photos in it. But I think I shortchanged my uh, skills. Photographer, people seem to really love the flowers, and they do serve as a as a good teaching tool for what it is I'm discussing. And a number of the books that are out there have been designed like cookery books, insofar as they're recipe based. And for me, living on an island in Canada, I didn't have access to those products. And I figured, well, there must be many people like me that. Um, cannot get themselves to a flower market in order to purchase these items. So they're stuck with what they have in their gardens. So how do they create that? How can they still, um, or, you know, maybe they might grow some of the flowers that are fashionable and required for these recipes, but it's like trying to find a rambutan, you know, in, in my local grocery store, these things are so difficult to find. So Let's make a book about the principles of design so that once a person is versed in those principles, they can apply them to whatever product they have at hand. And of course, for many people who have had to take the basics of English or the written language, uh, the famous Strunken White, the elements of style, uh, <laughs> should come to mind immediately. Was I, it I think it might be out of fashion by now, <laughs> but uh, and I know it is it is um, stronger in American audiences. But my editor came up with that, and I had to laugh. And I did write about this in the book because I actually had to teach an elements of style class when I was out of graduate <laughs> school to undergrads, and I had this and this crowd of poets and, you know, journalists and fiction writers all in one room because it was an elective in the writing department. And I, you know, had to address what is style? What is style? What, you know, how do these young people who are craving a style of their own, how do they conjure that? And I did it through talking about syntax, talking about punctuation, talking about nouns, talking about verbs. And in a similar way, in this book, I wanted to really break style down into um, lessons, the lessons of design or the principles of design. And I will say, I think I was heavily influenced by the fact that my publisher is Princeton Architectural Press. And there was just something about that word architectural that made me feel like, oh my goodness, I better know what <laughs> I'm talking about in terms of design. They did not put that rigor upon me, by the way. But my editor was fantastic and wonderful to work with. And she's the one who came up with the subtitle. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. And it does cue us up as readers as to what to expect and, and how and why this is a little different than a lot of the very beautiful flower books that, that we have out there. So talk about the structure and um, you, you just got started referring to how you were going to put it together, but let's maybe go through the sections and have you talk to us about what you were trying to achieve in each one and some of the different elements in each section so that readers get a sense of it. Sure. Um, it opens with um, something quite conventional, the beyond the introduction, which I think is wonderful. Um, the finding flowers and plants. So in that section, I address um, growing flowers, foraging, moving beyond flowers into vegetables and other plants, um, shopping for flowers, caring for flowers. Some of the basics are in there, but also the idea of conveying a sense of place and working um, in a garden style or working with what it is you have. So some of the environmental messaging comes across there. Then I talk about um, vessels and mechanics, and that that's actually a little more fun than you would think. There's some physics in there. There's definitely a lot of history in terms of the different vessel styles. And the largest section is next, and it's the color section. Mm. And that was uh, both challenging and fun because I was able to discuss painting. 
uh, because flowers really are like a material thing and a lot of our concerns are painterly concerns about how we perceive color. So I enjoyed that section. Then it goes on to shaping your work, which is really about gesture and form um, and repetition and rhythm. And then a fun section for me, the learning from the past section, which um, I get into the Baroque and Rococo and other design influences on our aesthetics at this time. And then there's another section on creativity and designing and restraint and style. And then a section called deepening your work about sort of why floral design, you know, how, what is its importance in the grander scheme of things and then photographing and then some ideas on business and how my career has developed. Wow. So not a small scope of research or exploration. Let's go back towards the beginning and um, one of the, and, and we'll dig into each of the sections just a little more. Hopefully we'll get to all of them, but I too loved the uh, the introduction and your referring to the movie, the A Little Chaos and the <laughs> soundtrack and the, the story of it was really, it was a beautiful film and of course, wonderful people in the film, but I'm sensing another Alan Rickman fan oh, here. God. I know it's God heartbreaking. Oh, he, you know we'll see him when we get to the other side. That's one of oh, our. I great hope hopes, so. Right? Oh my mm-hmm. goodness! Yeah. Um, the, you know, I think one of the things that uh, I definitely took away, and this was right there in your introduction, was that there is this delight you take in creation in the creation of your garden, in the creation of your arrangements, in the creation of your photographs, in the creation of this book, and that you really want to offer greater tools for other people to experience this same sense of creation. And I I just thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah. I do go a little nutty if I don't do something creative every day. (laughs) I, I think... Mm, that if everybody took that one statement to heart, it would be a we would have a better world to some extent. So, in the conveying a sense of place, there is a a lot of reference to deep ecology, to an ecological style, to environmental responsibility. Can you talk through some of the really important moments in this section that you? wanted to make sure were there? Well, you know, flowers, of course, are political. I mean, everything is these days, isn't it? Um, And I really wanted to address the issue of foraging uh, because I feel as an urban dweller that that isn't always handled responsibly and there can be a great rush to get on fad and get out there and use some wilder plants, but I don't always believe that people have enough ecological understanding to be harvesting responsibly or disposing of plant material responsibly. So I wanted to address that. Um, But conveying a sense of place for me in terms of the vase, uh, what, what appears in the vase, any gardener would recognize that there are moments in a garden's life. And I think of floristry as often capturing a moment in time in the garden or in nature and just presenting that in microcosm. Which brings me to another point about the where floristry stands in the larger gardening community. And I really didn't feel that it has... It, garners the respect it deserves because it's often quite divorced from earth-based discussions. And I think that's changing, but it's important for me to have a discourse between the garden writers and the floral designers because they're becoming more fused now with the local flowers movement. So that section, I wanted to address those things front and center and explain what my ethos was and where my aesthetic came from. And it was somewhat born of necessity, like I said, that I just don't have access to flowers. And also, I'm not doing big events and those kind of things. I'm a writer who does flowers. And I think that that is a different um, operation. Yeah, yeah. And I think, though, 
um, which is, you know, part of parcel of why I asked you to be part of the book was that there is this solid um, partnership between environmentalism and floral uh, design and floral garden work, which is often dismissed, not even in the industry, but in the world at large as something that's quite, you know, very pretty, but not really necessary and not political, not, it's not substantive. And the fact is that I, I disagree with that wholeheartedly. And we see from the work of uh, Aaron Benzkane or Deborah Prinsing and um, many of the seed keepers that it is directly correlated to our sense of beauty and survival and uh, grounding in where we live to be in an engaged relationship with the beautiful things around us and those include flowers and they always have when you uh when you're talking about ecological style this is one of those terms that i think gets used a lot in the landscape design and the floristry world can you just distill that down for listeners what is ecological style what do you mean by that well that i floated that to recognize that there is a way to approach floristry that might be more habitat conscious, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, mm-hmm. both in terms of potentially choosing not to use high demand flowers. So flowers that are hothouse produced or not, this is going beyond flowers that are out of season. This is talking about high demand flowers. So, um, you know, maybe forgetting some of your dahlias that don't offer anything to pollinators and only growing the single varieties that do and saying goodbye to some of the overbred ranunculus and so on. That would be kind of on the extreme, but I meant it in an aesthetic sense insofar as you know think about what plants might go together in the wild if you're looking for a design reference and I had an image there of um, corn poppies and some grasses and other drought tolerant species so they're linked through habitat in that ensemble yeah and I think it it's a it's a beautiful thinking um, and it also points out connections that we sometimes don't um, recognize are taking place in our brains or in the messaging that we take in all day, every day. Uh, For instance, you know, we'll see magazine layouts or book layouts in which flowers have been put, but don't actually mean anything. Whereas when somebody has spent the time to actually think about which of these go together, which don't, are they in season? Would they have come from here? Do they belong in this room? They they start to then be an, a point of actual content in what we see or what we read. And that then changes for us what we think is beautiful and what we think is um, worthy of emulating. Gosh, you're so articulate. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I am well, glad that I have provoked such thoughts, Jennifer. Well, Whoa. no, because just, um, you know, in that one section on the ecological style, you you quote Amy Sanderson, who uh, has been on the program before and uh, was at Beth Shadow Gardens. And, and, and that was a very ecologically based uh, gar- garden concept and ethos there and her work and Beth Shadow's work, certainly. And it reminded me of the fact of one of the reasons I included uh, knock me no in the book was this was a constant frustration for her as someone who loved plants and who was taking photographs to be working on shoots for interiors or cooking uh, spreads and and they would just place any old flower there and they didn't make any sense and if you were a flower person you knew it um, right yeah that's so ask- interesting yeah yeah and so asking viewers and readers to like level up their own education and knowledge is exactly what I see see you doing I'm Jennifer Jewell and this is Cultivating Place Kristen Giel is a floral designer author and educator she's sharing with us this week about the history and importance of floriculture and floristry in our larger cultural context Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Hey, it's Jennifer. As you listen to this, I'm now safely home for my abbreviated book tour for The Earth in Her Hands. 
And while I am so very sad to have had it cut short, I was so very glad to have met those of you I did meet and to have had the deep value of gardening affirmed for me by all of you that I met in person. Over and over again, the importance of gardening was affirmed. And since returning home and being in self-isolation as a result of my travels, I have had so many notes and comments from you all, letting me know how important the podcast is to you in these times, how connecting it is for you in these times of often great disconnection. So thank you. I am urgently and eagerly improving my skills for recording from home for editing and engineering my own audio so that Matt Fiddler is freed up to work on local coronavirus reporting. We are all in this together, more than ever. So thank you for your continued support and patience and listening as we meet this new normal for now together. One of the statements that jumped out at me in the first portion of this conversation with Kristen was this, quote, I go a little nutty if I can't do something creative every day, end quote. And I know this will resonate with most of you, especially now. We're all scrambling and off balance right now with worry, with fear, with harried attempts to plan for kids at home, for work at home if it's possible, and we're fortunate enough to be able to translate and transform our work in this way for how to handle the many potential losses. It's so much. It feels like too much, much of each day right now. And oddly, my tiny suburban back garden and my pots out front have been right there with work and activity to hold my hands, with the idea of growing a little food, of being in fresh air away from my desk and out of my head and trying to control the uncontrollable. I have always advocated for making a little time in your day, every day that you can, to garden. Same as you do for exercise or meditation or church. And today, my friends, this activity can be a very empowering part of your newly forming need for a schedule, for productivity, and for hope because that is all there in your soil and seeds, your flower and vegetable gardens with the birds and the bees, and the need for focus and peace. And as Kristen notes, the need for creativity. Let's see what we can create. Now, back to our conversation with Kristen Giel, whose new book, Cultivated, The Elements of Floral Style, celebrated its publication birthday this third week of March, 2020. Big congratulations to Kristen and her lovely, necessary book. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Kristen Giel, author of Cultivated, The Elements of Floral Style, out this month from Princeton Architectural Press. As a garden columnist, a floral designer, writing teacher, writer, and floral workshop leader, Kristen appeals to keen, thoughtful people hungry for intellectual consideration. Her rich aesthetic is filled with ecological commitment. Welcome back. Creativity and cultivating our own creativity with some of these rules, these elements of style rules, and some just paying attention. No rules. No yes. rules. Well, but guiding you those... essays, okay, guiding ex- explore, exploratory essays. Okay. I like yes. that. Okay. So you, you start us off with, this is good to know. Now go from there. Um, talk about a flower room of one's own. Oh, well, that that's about having thinking that we might have to be in a certain place or have a certain space in which to work with flowers, that it needs to be perfect prior to undertaking the task. I mean, there are some quirky little comments about, you know, putting a little bit of hose on your um, tap so that you might not crack a a vase as per constant spry. But really, it's about starting where you are, just on a, at a kitchen table, in a 
portion of your garage, which is my garage is no longer a garage now. It's a floral studio, but I don't have a large operation here. I take most of most of the pictures of the book were taken in my living room because the light is quite good. And, you know, I'd slosh water in and out of the front door all the time. <laughs> And that's why my dog appears in so many pictures because he's often just hanging out in the house and wants to be involved in whatever the project is. Um, So it's about just starting where you are. And um, flowers, for me, to enter as a business, um, you know, it's not a lot of outlay to kind of get going in it as a trade or as a side income stream. And I wanted to encourage people Um, in that regard throughout the book. Yeah. And you give some fantastic uh, tips from your own experience on things like photography and and getting set up to take photos and learning more about photos and even how to like handle a workshop. And um, I think these will all be really helpful. I kept coming across references to Instagram, which is, of course, this, you know, fantastic platform and one of the ways in which I know you. Uh, and yet it's also just this constant frustration and vain and demand. Um, and and so m- navigating that line so that you stay on the happy side of it instead of the, the more challenging side of it is, is an important line to, to walk for, especially, I think, you know, people just starting out. Um, but you kept making references to, like, how you should know things about the algorithm or like if you change your style, it gets, you know, it changes your numbers and I, I things I never uh, knew, Kristen. So I'm glad oh, I read well, your these book. Are, this is <laughs> partially conjecture and I'm sure I'm about a year behind on whatever the Instagram trends are in terms of how they analyze what you do. I just, I, I, I've lost track of my grid. I don't do that. I, I will post when I am in the mood to post even though I know what time of day it is best to post, that's not always possible. So I will just kind of go for it. And it seems to have worked. Um, Granted, people like my pictures. They don't often read my long blurbs, unfortunately. Um, but I, I am grateful. It is, I've been able to, um, meet so many people through Instagram and I've been educated about flowers, plants, photography, um, a whole bunch of things, places to go, things to do, you know, people to meet a lot of that for the plant community or really for me, a lot of it comes through Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about the, the learning from the past um, and I think I would love to have you, y- y- I loved your development of the Baroque style section and you, your sort of admission that you had not initially included it. Um, you do, you include several, you know, as you already mentioned, several different, uh, historic styles through the book or this section of the book specifically. And, um, but I, I just loved the 10 things to learn from the Baroque. Can you walk us through that? Oh, sure. These were fun. There are a few lists in the book, Um, not too many, but um, here we go. Ten things to learn from the Baroque. The Baroque was a period of radical transformation. Here are a few ideas drawn from Baroque music, art, and architecture. Use gesture and movement to initiate emotional response. Make people feel something when they look at your work. Indulge in complexity and embellishment, but resist chaos. That's an important principle in Baroque music. When photographing your flowers, use a light source that is dramatic but ambiguous outside of the image itself. Think of painting. Mm -hmm. Make people feel as if they're in the same space as the flowers you photograph. In painting, this is referred to as open form, which means the viewer has a sense that the full story cannot be contained by the image, and thus it opens beyond itself. Develop contrast and volume through the manipulation of light and dark. Remember chiaroscuro. Observation of the natural world and the materiality of things can lead to great art. Such a fascinating time for plant exploration, so I had to get that one in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. This one, I I loved it when I was able to come up with this after looking at a number of Baroque uh, paintings. Draped and rippled fabric and ribbons allow you to play with light and show off your artistic prowess. 
In Baroque music, there's a sense of abandon, but also control created through the repetition of motif and rhythm. In Baroque gardens, such as those at Het Leeuwen, the Netherlands, at Warhampton Court in England, grandeur is always tempered with restraint. Use rich colors and dark backgrounds to tell the truth about human suffering and passion. Recognize that history informs your work. Just as the Baroque painters look to the classical world for education and inspiration, know that you too have been sculpted in your aesthetics and understanding of beauty. Hmm. The photographs that go with each of these uh, different periods is really telling and beautiful. Like the um, the Dutch floral still life, honor, change, and decay. And you just think of those like half-eaten bones and, and dogs at the side of the table in some of these, you know, paintings. And um, and your uh, still life photography is, is really beautiful in that way. The color section is a is a big oh, section. Yes. Yeah. And this is uh, one of the threads in your writing, whether it's your newsletter or um, some of your articles or your posts in social media, where you really grapple with these uh, ideas of, of style as well as um, understanding the actual science of seeing and seeing color. Will you talk about these things that you were grappling with in the color section and why they were so important to you, Kristen? Um, understanding color is, you know, when people say you have a bit of a gift and you have no idea how you've acquired that, um, people think I'm good with color. Oh, Kristen, you're so good with color. And I would think, um, really, you know, am I, I think I just use these analogous schemes repetitively, or I look at one flower and then pull all the, the colors that are in that flower into the rest of the arrangement. So there's that, but then there was a moment about three or four years ago when I was getting married or maybe, oh, I don't know how many years it was. Um, I'm not a good wife in that regard. Um, so <laughs> I took a color theory class and it was four months long and it was so hard. And I realized that I did not really have this language for color, like visual or verbal in order to describe what it was that I saw. So I found it fascinating because it was a whole new area of inquiry for me and um, why I enjoyed writing the color section is because I was able to discuss painting in greater detail. And I, I really, really enjoy art history and where it takes you. It can take you into the economics of the period and the politics of the period. And next week I'm doing a color theory talk at the Northwest Flower and Garden Show. And I'm trying to narrow it down just to what happened in the 19th century with the Chem the Industrial Revolution and the chemicals that were developed at that time and how that expanded the range of paints available and how that influenced the Impressionists and their understanding of color. Um, so I had fun in the color section, but I still find color quite difficult. And there's something that's almost like science brain about it that gets a little too into physics about optical mixing of color and so on that I find just a little too abstruse. I want to help other people navigate their way through color. And so through storytelling, whether it's about painting or about whatever it is I can pull to um, make this technical language more accessible, that was my goal with the color section. Right. And, and you, um, you elucidate some things that our eyes understand and, and register, but our brains don't necessarily understand. And so then when we go to work with these things, whether it's in flowers or on paper or, you know, evaluating a photograph, we don't really understand it. And this ability to kind of deconstruct how it's working um, is just, it's a whole language and mystery of its own that is fun, I think. It's so. fun. And, you know, I was, gardeners struggle with this too, you know, in their herbaceous borders, you know, at mm -hmm. come, come dusk, you know, the red disappears and, yeah. you know, let's bring on the white flowers and, you know, that makes sense ecologically for the moths and so on. But it's a, it's a part of garden design and we struggle with it in floral design about where garden, where flowers might be placed or in, on, on in which kind of lighting as well, because artificial lighting then becomes a factor. 
yeah, it's it's challenging. <laughs> but but fun, but fun. But fun. Um so the photography has become and you said you almost would have like I said, let's just not even include the photographs. And yet they have become a part of it that I think you love and, and I know other people, including myself, adore. Um, and I love to look at the complexity and think about the light, think about the shapes, um, all of which you go through in in the book. If, if you were going to walk uh, beginning people through how to take on photographing their, their work and, and getting better – before they read your book, which they will probably do, uh, wh- what would those what would those words of advice be? First of all, to give your sense of give yourself a sense of competency and com- confidence, I would suggest um, photographing in a similar place um, repeatedly. Not only will this help you develop like a visual look, but you'll figure out the camera settings if you're using a camera or the time of day when um, the florals look their best. And so just that small little step towards mastery um, can be so significant. Uh, I usually go for light that is only coming from one side and I might bounce some of the light back with a whiteboard, but um, natural light I always use. Um, I'm not that advanced with it. I'm actually quite a terrible um, photographer in the garden, Um, but in a controlled setting, I, I do a little better and I also anticipate that the image will be a rectangle and it will be presented vertically. So I know about what it is I'm framing. And I think that came up in that list about the Baroque that, Mm -hmm. okay, you know, we're making um, art here. And so how can I do the best service to the flowers? How can I make them look as good as they look to me, if not better through lighting? And a photographer friend of mine in Toronto um, she suggests, she does more still life. Um, Kristen Sarda is her name. And she said, remember, you're not arranging the flowers, you're arranging the light. Mm. That is definitely more on the still life level. Um, but still it's interesting. Yeah. When you're photographing your work, you're often in your living room, you know, sometimes you're traveling all over the world and you just find a place that you think has good light and a stable foundation for for your work yeah um are you always using your real camera your are you still using your I Canon? am now yeah and I still have an entry-level Canon and I really need some notch of that a bit because now that I'm blowing up the pictures um which I can to about four feet um, I'd still, I'm interested to see what the next level camera could do in terms of depth, but then that's really going down the still life rabbit hole and I might, you might never see me again. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see your photographs in large. I'm Jennifer Jewell and this is Cultivating Place. Kristen Giel is a floral designer, author, educator, and writer. She is sharing with us this week about the history and importance of floral design and floristry in our larger cultural context. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Okay, so thinking out loud this week. These were the bits that I heard loud and clear in the second section of our conversation with Kristen. Most of what caught my ear were in her discussion on the lessons from the Baroque period of music and art a period of art history in all the art forms in Europe, from the early 1600s to the early mid-1700s. Kristen points out in her book and in our conversation the Baroque emphasis on complexity and embellishment, but resisting chaos, on grandeur tempered by restraint. For me, sitting in this seat right now, I see my own impulse to garden very meaningfully activated this week, both for the practical and for the impractical, for the complexity and the embellishment as a direct resistance to chaos. I have sown my peas, my basil I have sown under cover, 
A new round of lettuce and chard and cilantro is in before our late spring heats up here so as to make all of these bolt. John and I have organized beds in his garden where the winter onion and garlic are coming into maturity to think about and designate where the seed potatoes will go. But we also focused on more flowers for us and for the birds and the bees. They will need the floral resources of nectar and pollen, and we will need them for their place in the wildlife food chain, for their pollination and predatory services, and for the delight of being here with them. As a global consciousness and a species, we have collectively not felt quite so tied into the fabric of life so pointedly in a very long time. I am so saddened for the many ways that this moment in time is disrupting and causing pain and loss to so many of us. Here in my county, we went through the Oroville Dam crisis of 2017, the campfire of 2018, and now this. It was never a wealthy county, and this is hitting home in extreme ways. Take care of yourselves and each other, all of our living creatures. Wash your hands and keep gardening. If there is a how-to gardening information or resource you need access to, and you think I can point you in the right direction, reach out by Instagram or Facebook comment or by email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. I will do my best to answer any questions and point people along. In each county, your master gardeners, your garden clubs, your native plant societies all have resources on their websites to help you. But I am also happy to help anytime in any way that I can. If you had the time in the coming weeks to post a review or a rating of Cultivating Place on iTunes or any of the podcast platforms, I would be greatly appreciative. It helps to grow the podcast and get these conversations of meaning out into the world to the people whose ears could really use them right now. Together we grow. Thank you. Now back to our conversation with Kristen Eel, author of Cultivated, The Elements of Floral Style, published in March of 2020 by Princeton Architectural Press. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Kristen Giel, author of Cultivated, The Elements of Floral Style, out this month from Princeton Architectural Press. Kristen writes, quote, ecologists and writers are interdisciplinary thinkers. So thinking about floral design holistically as a form of ethnobotany comes easily to me. I also love the workshop model of teaching, whether using flowers or words. It's interactive, conversational, and creativity always catches you by surprise. Welcome back. I'm also not a very technical person, so the appeal of learning a new piece of technology when I, I you know, I struggle left and right with technology. That I, I let's remember, a, a camera is technology, and using Lightroom is technology. And I don't use Lightroom. I don't edit my pictures. They went to someone who got them ready for publication, but they're not manipulated. And um, I don't. I'm not sure about how if I, if that's how I want to spend my time. You know, with right. with more 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 time because I frankly actually like writing just as just as much if not more. Right. Yeah. And are you always using a tripod? Yes, I am. Okay. Yeah. And what is your favorite time of day to photograph? Well, my window faces east, so um, in the afternoon, late afternoon. Um, in this process, I mean, you've been a writer for a very long time and an, uh, an educator and a sharer of words and flowers and gardening and environmentalism. In this process of putting together the book, were there surprises for you along the way in the process or in the content that resulted? Kristen? Yeah, I, um, 
in retrospect now, I see the book, and this, this is honestly just a self-criticism. It, I see how I have been shaped as a woman of, you know, 50 in Canada and what my understanding of the world is. And it, the book is very Western in approach. And I see its limitations within that. But, you know, I have been influenced by, you know, Western art, Western music, Western thought. And um, I'm aware of that. So that was one surprise when I sort of looked at the entire thing at the package and floated above it. I thought, oh, well, yes, this is very much like Eurocentric bit of um, bit of flowering here, darling. And um, lately I've been in some tropical locations and less developed locations. And I am sad that my book can't speak to those in those regions of the world. That is currently my state of mind, but that's a little self-critical. I think that I hope that readers are surprised and delighted at how interdisciplinary the book is. And, um, and I hope that it's engaging for that reason. I am very much a holistic thinker and pull from all kinds of different places that, um, psychology in some cases and, you know, different writers or any, you know, I'll just, I'm, I'm a magpie and will grab whatever bit I can and try and create a narrative from it. So I hope that that's engaging. And that's perhaps one of the most compelling reasons that people write is because it, you conjure these ideas in the midst of creation and that makes it so fun. Right. Yeah. There are so many parts I, 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 I would love to walk through with you. Uh, one of them is, you know, and this is one of the lessons. So throughout the book, you discuss these different, you know, overarching ideas and concepts. And then you'll kind of dive down into um, an, uh, an idea more specifically and, and have it offered out as a lesson. Um, one of these is texture. Will you, um, first of all, read the quote at the top? This is pretty florid language, Jennifer. Good. Yeah, I know. It's actually... <laughs> okay. That's why we're here. <laughs> Texture. Nothing sticks to a smooth surface. A certain roughness and ugliness, even, is required in our creative lives. Eric Weiner. There comes a point in autumn when fruit eclipses root, when we stop watering and start ripening the tomatoes we push, squashes we harden, and flowers we encourage to set seed. The garden appears to lean into autumn's golden light, almost as if knowing how beautiful it will look. And suddenly, as if we hadn't been paying attention, we notice it all. The last shining blackberry, a backlit orange leaf, the powdery duff of a quince. Texture means many thing to an, things to an arrangement. Relief, light, softness, and also the inverse, clarity. Silhouettes slip into focus in the fall, and there's a cinematic romance to the season, almost as if we see our world side-lit, the sun's glow close enough to draw our attention to a subject, and yet diffuse enough to blur a scene. Can you tell I am smitten by the season? This feeling supports my autumnal gardening fatigue, of course. The garden and I are both healthily resigned in October. The plants have run their course. I've done my best. And all of spring's hope is finally exhaled. What we as gardeners have forgotten to do, cut back, pinch, yank weed, is there to see but no longer glaring. Fog ices our cake. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Tell us a little bit about the arrangement in the photograph right next to it. Well, that is a bit of a folly. It is built from epilobium seed heads, so our native fireweed here in British Columbia, which is grows on the edges of logging roads and so on, um, which is very wafty. Its seeds are small and go everywhere. So that is this is truly a moment captured in time on a not windy day um, with some... I think they're Persian carpet zinnias, the little zinnias, some late season dahlias, waltzing Matilda, and um, some rudbeckia. So it's a warm um, image and a, a few um, berry, orange berries from Ilex, and then some, I think, uh, oh, 
Ligularia seed heads. Ah, okay. It, and it's, it's a beautiful illustration to, to the texture section as well. I think that you have another section you might like to read to us. Ripe and ready. We are talking about flowers, so sexual innuendo is entirely apt. Flowers are the reproductive structures of higher plants. They serve a purpose to attract pollinators with the singular goal of making more of their kind. We might think of them as beauties alone, demure in countenance, or sterile showstoppers bred into submission, but don't underestimate nature no matter how manipulated by human hands. Most flowers are, thankfully, nothing short of wanton libido made manifest. And I like the experienced ones best. Do you make banana bread from young fruit? Eat a hard peach? Never. If you're like me, you nibble that bit of orange just around the moldy spot because it's the orangiest, the best. My friend, the chef Mara Jernigan, once recited this truism, c'est le vieux légume qui fait le bon patage. It is the old vegetable that makes the good soup. I agree. Blousy and blown flowers are often the most evocative. They've been open to the world for a while, and that serves me as a designer as well as the planet. I may moan about poppies losing their pollen to bees before I pluck them, but really isn't that the point of my work and the flowers? To ensure more life, not less. To share what I've grown with both people and the insects who ensure me seed. I'll take my tulips hanging full and heavy, thank you, relaxed in poised coital repose. No one expects the arugula served at dinner to last a week and a fresh cob of corn sweetness even less. This may not help when you're grabbing a few bunches at the grocery store, but perhaps wait a few days to use your flowers so they have a chance to relax. Life is short and epic and tragic and joyful, so give me a day or or two of perfection over a week of mediocrity. Smudge me with pollen right between my eyes. Thank you very much for <laughs> being a guest on the program today. I knew it would be a joy to speak with you, and I am looking forward to speaking on a stage with you next week in Seattle at the Northwest Flower and Garden Show and several other stops across our summer season. That's um, right. Yes. yes we're, we're not see. quite on the roommate level, but I, th I think Nantucket will be fun. I think so, too. We'll, <laughs> yes. be in, we'll be at the New York Botanic Garden together. We'll be at uh, Polly Hill together. We'll be at Nantucket together. And I think maybe even one more. But we will, we will point those out to listeners and readers and flower lovers along. And let me just take a minute to let thank you from the bottom of my heart for The Earth in Your Hands. It's a phenomenal book. I am chipping away at it, and it's so inspirational. And for you to have interviewed so many women that have such diverse careers, it's really shown me a whole new side of um, women's relationship to plants, uh, everything from soil to biodiversity, things that I'm not as versed on. So thank you. Well, I was very pleased your work is there. Kristen Giel is a floral designer, author, and educator. Her new book, Cultivated, The Elements of Floral Style, is out this month from Princeton Architectural Press. I'll be hosting a giveaway on cultivatingplace.com. Make sure to look out for it. The book is available everywhere books are sold. Join us again next week when we continue our series for Women's History Month in the midst of this global crisis, pandemic, and overall reset, when we're joined by Ayana Young, founder and host of For the Wild Project and Podcast. The wisdom of her thinking and where her attention has been focused in her work this past decade could not be more relevant to our many needs today. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. The earth is in all of our hands. Take good care. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. 
Over on cultivatingplace.com this week, make sure to check out the many photos of Kristen Giel's beautiful photographs of her beautiful floral arrangements and all of the narrative inherent in them. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. She ain't